Hello, everyone. This is Jason Jacobs, and welcome to My Climate Journey. This show follows my journey to interview a wide range of guests to better understand and make sense of the formidable problem of climate change and try to figure out how people like you and I can help. Hey, everyone. Jason here. Today's guest is Matthew Norden. Managing Director of Prime Impact Fund, an early-stage venture capital fund focused on breakthrough climate innovation. We had a great discussion. We talked about climate change and what a big existential crisis it is. We talked about Matthew's early career, where he worked at Forrester Research and then was the co-founder of Lux Research, which he helped scale into a quite meaningful enterprise. We talked about his time at Venrock, a traditional VC firm, and some of the successes that he had while he was there, such as investing in Nest, but also some of the frustrations, especially as it related to his ability to invest in some of the higher risk but important scientific breakthroughs that could have an outsized impact on the climate fight. We also talked about some of the work he did at MNL Partners, where he was doing project finance work in China and uh, some of the successes there, but also some of the changes in our relationship with China as a country that's made that entity have a little more headwind. And we talked about Prime Coalition and the important work that they're doing to enable philanthropic capital to be devoted to catalytic investing in startups that are important for the world, but that are a little more risky upfront in order to get them ready for more traditional market-based capital. I had a great time talking to Matthew. And I learned a lot as well, and hopefully you will too. So with that, Matthew, welcome to the show. Hey, how you doing? I'm doing well. I'm glad that you're here. And I have to tell you, your colleague, Sarah, as you know, was on the show a few weeks ago. And she did so well that, I mean, the best you can hope for is to do almost as well as she did. I'm aiming for silver medal here. That's, that's the goal. But in all earnestness, I'm glad you're here. We initially met, gosh, probably three or four months ago when I was just getting rolling. Over a grain bowl. Over a grain bowl? Over a grain bowl. I felt bad. You wanted protein, and I just offered you carbs in a bowl. It wasn't really appropriate. At your favorite Central Square spot? Life Alive, free plug. I, I hate vegetarian food. Vegan food's even worse. I think they must sneak pork into there when nobody's looking. But you have a really interesting story, and I only got snippets of it, but the snippets I got were already interesting. And so I'm excited for our listeners to hear it, but selfishly, I'm just excited to learn more because I think there's a lot more to the story than, than what we've covered so far. Okay. Where do you want to start? It seems like climate's been a consistent theme for you. You maybe moved away from it for a part professionally and then came back, but I'd love to just know when was your awakening, if there was one? I mean, was it a gradual thing? Was it after college? Was it from when you were a little kid? How did all this come about that this is where you spend your professional life? I don't think I would have guessed it, right? I'm one of those people who's a terrible judge of my own life. If you ever asked me, what are you going to be doing in five years? The answer I would give you is an excellent indicator of what I will not be doing in five years. Now, I grew up in central North Carolina, outside of Charlotte, Southern Baptist household. It's a very different kind of upbringing, right? It's, it's a very different culture. And I was a Boy Scout and hiked on mountains on weekends and liked things that were green, but I wouldn't have considered myself an environmentalist, and I certainly wouldn't have considered myself a feet coastal liberal, right? That was kind of not what you did in North Carolina. And I don't think I had any particular awakening around climate and resources until one really specific, God, it would have been a lunch, 
at the annual meeting of Semiconductor Trade Association, and I guess 2005, I had started a company called Lux Research that is an information services company. It advises folks in big companies and financial institutions and governments. I mean, it's a big firm now, right? Yeah, it had become a, a decent thing. I'm very proud of the team there. And we had just started our first research coverage, and I had done this piece about the future of semiconductor lithography. And I get asked to be part of the lunchtime entertainment for this trade association. And there are three people who speak, a big semi-industry executive, myself, and a Nobel laureate named Richard Smalley, who won the Nobel Prize for discovering the fullerene molecule. It's a buckyball carbon nanostructure. And you know, the first guy went, and then I went, and then Smalley gets up to do his thing, and he was going to die. I think he died about a year later of terminal leukemia, but he hadn't told anybody this and had decided that he was going to use whatever bully pulpit he had as an eminent scientist to try to wake the world up, try to pull people out of the matrix when it came to an imminent threat facing humanity. And he got up and gave this talk that he called the Terawatt Challenge. I'm going to get these numbers wrong, but it was something like this. He got up and said something like, if you took the entire energy consumption of the planet and expressed it as a rate, right, like a speed, that the world operates at about seven terawatts of power at all times. But that's a function of people and then of a GDP per head of stuff per person and then of how many resources we use per unit of stuff. And he said, you can map those numbers out. Like we have forecasts for population and for GDP. And you run the math and by 2030, you now need 15 terawatts. You need to more than double the electricity consumption of the world. And the big stupid math that he did that day was to say, well, there are about 8,000 days between today and 2005 and the end of 2030. And lighting up a new nuclear fission plant somewhere in the world is about a gigawatt. So that means that we just need to light up a new nuclear power plant equivalent somewhere on the world every day from now through 2030, which for a variety of reasons obviously wasn't going to happen. And then the rest of his talk was all about what are the alternatives? What's the energy mix that you build? And I don't know if it was that it was the right time in my life, like I just had my second daughter, I'd moved back to the U.S. from living overseas. I don't know if those things sort of put you in the right frame of life or they pull at your heartstrings. A lot of people say that it was around the time that they started having kids that they had this awakening. So as an aside, we had this meeting with my colleagues at Prime Coalition with the foundation recently. We had a call to action at the end, and one of my colleagues put a picture of her children into the deck and said, this is what I'm doing it for. And they were like, first of all, that's great, and it's an awesome thing, and we're so happy with you. Secondly, everyone puts pictures of their children in the deck. Take those out. We've seen that a thousand times. <laughs> so yes, I do think it's everybody. But it led to some huge changes. We were trying to figure out where to take Lux Research at the time in terms of what technologies we would cover. And I think I had high conviction that this resource challenge was going to be a big deal and figuring out how to solve it could be lucrative. And we built a bunch of practices that were all around energy and environment. But there were personal aspects to it. Like I looked in my daughter's eyes and realized we go to the grocery store and she thinks the food just shows up like it's just there. And I realized they needed to have an understanding that we get resources from something, that they take work, that they take inputs, they take their carbon miles and them getting to your house. So we dug up our front yard and we planted food. And I'll tell you, digging up your front yard in Boston North Shore suburb makes you initially unpopular with your neighbors. They're not big fans of that until you start bringing them delicious food. And it also made my house super easy to find. I would say just drive around until you see the one with the corn and there you are. But what kind of bugged me was that there was another step in that chain that Smalley had laid out. He was talking about how do you get from people to stuff to resources to like terawatts of power, but now put a carbon footprint on every watt hour 
and you've got a last term, right, that represents this existential threat to humanity. And you wonder, why aren't people more worried, right? Like if what had hit the news when I was a child, I'm 44, when did we start getting wise about this stuff? Late 80s, early 90s? I mean, some people were wise about it even earlier. They were just actively trying to cover their tracks and not talk about it. Indeed, right. Well, definitely a tobacco lawsuit moment coming in this space. And uh, there's some friends of Prime's that have a lot of visibility to that. Come back to it later, maybe. If the news that it hit, right, was not that there is a colorless, odorless gas accumulating in the atmosphere, which I personally, in that abstract form, find it pretty hard to get worried about, but was there's a meteor hurtling toward the Earth. There is like a bad, deep impact movie scenario coming in at the edge of Pluto of what is no longer a planet but was, and we can map the trajectory, and we know where it's coming, and we know how big it is, and we know how fast it is, and we have an idea of what it happens when it hits the Earth. What would you expect, right? You would expect people to freak out. You would expect there to be revolution in the streets. You would expect public leaders to be called to task. You would expect some World War II victory garden moment where you're thinking, what more can I do? How can I personally make this my problem, something that's a solution I'm making for my children? But we don't do that because we evolved on the Miocene savanna over 14 million years to deal with intragenerational problems that were acute. Like, man, I can't find any more cassava. This is a problem. Like, I've got to eat something else. Or there's no shelter and I'm freezing in the cold every night. I've got to solve this problem. The colorless, odorless gas problem, just hard to get juiced up about. That makes sense so far? It does. It's something that I'm really wrestling with as well because... To your point, there's so much urgency to this problem, but I think it's tricky because one, you can't harder to see and touch and, and like directly hard for carbon, this colorless, odorless thing to be a formidable enemy. But also it's urgent in that it plays out over decades where some of the responses that I've gotten when I'm on this path is, look, you have the luxury for this to be an urgent problem like that plays out over decades because your yeah. near term is all squared away, right? right. And what about all the people that like are in terrible straits today? And that's what I'm worried about. And that's my reality. And that's the reality of all these people that I know. And so I don't have a great answer to that. And that comes back around to then, do you wrap that into the climate fix or are they two separate and distinct things, right? So we could spend the whole thing talking just about that, which I don't want to do, but, but it's tricky. Yeah, that's... The bottom line. Well, then there's a Spider-Man power responsibility moment here, right? The fact that you are in a position in life where you are not thinking about how you collect enough firewood for tonight or get the water up from the river without the crocodiles biting you sort of puts you in a position that it's incumbent on you to do something about it. That's how I feel. I mean, I try not to judge, but it does bother me that more people don't feel that way who are in similar positions. So look, to the extent that I have any training, it's in human behavior. I studied psychology and did, for my sins as an undergraduate, functional MRI research where you would map what parts of the brain are lighting up when people experience certain emotions or converting short-term memory to long-term memory. What does that teach you? It teaches you that people are machines, like beautiful, exquisite, elegant, emergent property machines, but machines and ones that have some predictable nature to them. And the future that I guess I envision isn't one, it can't be one, where the existential threat of the colorless odorless gas is top of mind. I don't think that's going to happen. Not for most people, not for many people, maybe for vanishingly almost not any people. I think that if you see that there are solutions that can work, that can work pre-crisis, the trick is to embed those so that people don't have to think about it. And I think that's very much what we're trying to do at Prime. Can you give an example? Yeah. What's a good one? 
So the first investment that we made when we got Prime Coalition started as a 501c3 public charity was in 2015. And it's in the area of energy storage, right? Somebody tuning into your podcast probably understands this pretty well, but it's a holy grail problem of energy. I remember when I first sort of woke up to the energy storage issue. I was at my parents' beach house on like one of these 104 degree days in North Carolina. And I was having this conversation with my mom while plugging in my electric razor. And I was trying to get across like how the power grid works, that there's baseload power, stuff that's on all the time, like street lights, air conditioning systems, whatever. But every time the power needed goes up, somebody's turning up the volume on a peaking natural gas facility or turning on a new plant. And I tried to get across to her, oh, yeah, it's funny, on a day like this, one of the hottest two or three days of the year, somewhere there's a natural gas plant that turns on for two days, built for tens of billions of dollars and goes into action two days out of the year. And she was like, Matthew, that can't be true. That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. We don't pick exactly the amount of corn that we need to have dinner tonight for everyone. And it doesn't rain the exact amount of the water that we need to drink. We have silos for the corn and reservoirs for the water. Clearly, we store energy somehow. And I was like, wow, we don't. Because it's just really hard. It's super expensive. The best we've ever gotten is caveman energy storage. Pump water uphill when you got too much power. Let it go down and turn a turbine when you don't. So energy storage. And there's one version of how you get renewables onto the grid And how you balance having intermittent sources of generation, solar and wind, with what comes behind them that is really super hard. It means you've got to re-engineer how people who run the grid call power resources and you have to have smart electronics in people's homes that are turning things on and off and making the washing machine go right at the white time you want it to go. And you have to have behavioral demand response where people are cognizant of the fact that stuff is on in their house and it's a really hot day and the power plants are going on and yada, yada, yada. That requires a lot of behavioral change. It has a lot of friction. It needs policies to change, regulations to change. All that just sounds hard to me. I feel like what would be much easier is to have something that just makes it super simple, some translation layer between this intermittent set of solar and wind generation on one side and the way we actually use power, which frankly is whenever we damn well please. And how would you do that, right? You would just have a buffer. You'd have a cache. You'd have something in between this intermittent generation and unpredictable demand that would smooth them out. And there are ways to do that. There's a version of that that you would do through the battery technology we have today through lithium-ion batteries. It would involve building sort of very large and very expensive facilities kind of hard to see, even if God gave you the lithium for free, if you built things like that, how they could be accommodated without increasing the cost of power. So now you've got a debate somewhere about having a subsidy mechanism, which may be eternal, and then who pays for that and how they pay for that. All that sounds hard. It would be a lot easier if we could find something that was just lower cost, that just worked, that didn't have to have subsidies or price supports or anything else, just worked. And there's a company that had made the rounds on Sand Hill Road and in you know, the Route 128 ring in Boston called Quidnet Energy. They had a pretty crazy idea for how you would do grid-scale energy storage to store energy not in batteries, but in pressurized water underground. The inside of the founder, a guy named Howard Schmidt, who was a Saudi Aramco a reservoir engineering specialist, was that when you went out and did fracking, you did half of an energy storage job. You took a lot of electricity, you put it in a pump, you jammed water underground at pressure. At first, it cracks the rock. But when the rock starts cracking, it compresses the rock like a spring. And now you've got millions of tons of the weight of the earth pushing back, pushing that water back out. You opened a valve, it would spew back up. We call that flowback water. And his insight was that if you found reservoirs that had a very low leak-off rate, were adjacent to transmission lines and to solar or wind power, you could actually store water just like you would pumping uphill and letting it go down, but do it underground. 
where you don't have to lop off the top of a mountain, dig out a lake and line it, and then put turbines in another lake at the bottom. You could do it almost anywhere, really anywhere you had the right geology and had transmission and proximity to solar and wind. Everybody in the venture community and energy saw this. Everybody passed, including me. So I was a venture investor at Venrock at the time. We couldn't get conviction because it was just way too high risk. If you were going to go out and do this, what's the first thing you would do? You would take your computer simulation, which they'd started with, and now go out into a reservoir and start pressurizing it. If you picked the wrong one, you could blow one or two million dollars in a morning. Nobody wanted to do that until somebody went first who is inherently capable of taking on a little bit more risk and going a little bit earlier than a usual investor. And that's what we could do at Prime. We invest dollars that are mission-related capital that has a long-term orientation and that cares about the social good created by the investment and is willing to take on some more risk to get it because they're looking for a blend of impact and some level of financial return. Thankfully, when we backed that company, it then was successful in the field, went out and raised a Series A round from investors with much deeper pockets than we have. And then we were fortunate enough to go out and do that. I think we're on our 13th company now. So, so far, so good. And so with that additional risk that you're taking on, I know it's philanthropic capital, but is there also additional upside associated with that? So is it a more attractive price, as an example, coming in at the stage that you are? So it's interesting. You didn't go where I thought you would with that. Let me go to where you went and then to where you didn't. From an investor perspective, it's absolutely the case that when there's not a lot of capital lining up to back things that could ultimately be very valuable there's got to be some price value arbitrage, right? You've got to be able to buy lower than you might otherwise, regardless of whether you sell high or kind of high or highest. From a prime perspective, we tend not to think that way because we know that if we're going to cultivate solutions to the existential threat of climate change, we need to get capital into the field. But we also, more than anything else, need to attract talent. And you don't attract talent by browbeating entrepreneurs with sub-market investment terms that serve as a disincentive for them to go on this long journey and get to the finish line. So our terms actually tend to be fairly pro-entrepreneur. We often syndicate with other investors where we ride along with terms that they set so that there's no conflict, right, and over the fact that we have this additional philanthropic motive. I guess what I was getting at is, is it priced as if the risk is baked out and then it is ready for the more market-based capital, or is it an earlier round? No, definitely an earlier round and definitely not priced. Definitely something that's not being touched by mainstream investors for a reason. So where didn't I go that you thought I was going to go? I thought you were going to go to the other side, which is what's on the other side. And that's what I think the investors in our fund have understood, that there are a few paths are possible, right? One of them, which is you know likely with most areas of human innovation endeavor, is that nothing works or things only kind of work and it goes sideways. We forget that five out of six venture funds never return capital, net of their fees, right? We think of it as an asset class that is defined by winning portfolios. It's defined by losing portfolios and defined by investors who never return a dollar of money back. Well, same thing with being an entrepreneur. Same you, thing with being you, an entrepreneur. You don't think of an entrepreneur as whatever the 99 out of 100 that don't work or something, right? You just think of it as the Dropboxes and the Facebooks and the Twitters and Uber. Our American myth is Steve Jobs. You toil away in the basement, you bring on some outside money, you ring the bell on the NASDAQ, but it's not the reality of life for most. So with that in mind, I think our investors know that. They understand that really well. I also think they recognize that if you are aiming with the lens through which we're aiming, about only technologies and companies and business models that could have a big impact on climate, not a small one, could be as impactful as the entire wind fleet or the entire solar fleet today. And you're trying to do that in a world where things can get deployed quickly, which means you're trying not to depend on policy change. You're trying not to depend on regulatory support. 
and you're willing to take bets that others will not, there should be some asymmetry in the return on the dollars out as well as to the dollars in, right? There aren't that many big problems in energy. There's how do you have a benign baseload source of power that goes after coal. There is how do you match supply and demand for electricity that goes after gas. There is how do you have a conflict and carbon-free transportation fuel that goes after oil. And then there's an additional problem we've created for ourselves, which is how do you pull the CO2 we've put into the sky out of it? Because we probably can't get to a solution without that. Those are the big problems. Most of the other problems are small. Like water desalination, big problem. But if you had a free, benign, baseload source of power, you wouldn't care. You just boil the ocean. There wouldn't be much downside to that. It'd be pretty easy to do. If you could solve one of those big problems in a meaningful way, you would have made tens or hundreds of billions of dollars enterprise. The probability you hit it is really low, but the opportunity on the other inside is massive. Yeah, and the time horizons are longer, right? Right, and if you imagine a world where the externality is priced in, Probably not going to happen in this country because we're just not very good at that. I guess we were at one point under Bush with socks and knocks that we were able to get out of the skies and stop the acid rain plague that was going to kill us when I was a kid. But there are other places in the world that are getting better at pricing the externality. You know, Europe is getting better. China, I think, has really no choice but to get to better, and it's aligned with a set of national industrial policies. That'll change the economics for everybody. When does that happen? I'm super confident it happens in 20 plus or minus 20 years. But I couldn't give you a lot more specificity than that. So I guess coming back around, you had this awakening, and was that pre-Venrock? It was. I was. I was running Lux Research then. I got recruited into Venrock to learn the venture capital business from some really extraordinary people after that. And what was the incentive to make that move? I guess, how did that jive with the awakening that you had? You're asking interesting questions. From my perch as the leader of analysts who are focused on sort of energy environment, I saw a large amount of venture capital money coming into this category, referred to as clean tech at the time, in the mid-2000s. And I thought, man, this probably ends in tears. Because the money's mostly coming from the same people, right? It's coming from the guy who runs MIT's endowment or the guy who runs the pension fund for some big union or something like that. The money's coming from the same places. But somebody moved the cheese because the cost to grow and scale an internet company in the mid-2000s dropped by, what, four or five orders of magnitude? I mean, you'd know this better than I did. There was a point where you wanted to start a consumer internet business. You went out and got Colo and put your servers into racks. Today, we just put in a credit card at AWS, and the cost per cycle is many orders of magnitude lower than it would have been even a decade or two ago. And the conclusion is if you've got money that has the same return expectations, and it can flow to internet startups that don't require a lot of money to figure out if you've got it or not. I mean, you need a lot of growth equity. That's all money that goes on after you know the model works, right? The risk capital is actually quite small and getting smaller. Why would you invest it? in things like the energy storage system or the fourth generation solar cell or the benign advanced nuclear reactor. Why would you do that? You might get the same outcome, but with more time and more money and more risk. Why would that make any sense? And this is still the calculus that you're going through when assessing your next move after Lux? Just looking at the universe, right? I wasn't looking for a next move. The job of being the head of an analyst firm where you get to think and talk and speak about cool stuff all the time is great job. I recommend it highly for anybody who is analytical and curious and fascinated by anything. Like find something that analyzes that thing. Or a podcaster. Or a podcast is actually a great idea. I hear those are going to be big. There's an app for those on my phone. It was just there when I got it. Anyway, saw all this money coming in, thought this probably ends badly, right? This is probably like a bubble of some kind. 
And it's going to end in tears because people are investing in something that looks like biotech without the exit model. And I thought the problem wasn't so much with the space. It was probably in approaching it with venture capital as usual. And you wanted something different. You wanted a longer time frame. You wanted investors who had some secondary motivation outside of purely financial return. It doesn't have to be philanthropic, right? It could be sovereign. I want to develop my economy. It could be strategic. I want to add new products to my portfolio. But some other motivation and some other stuff. And I learned something. That became my stump speech. And I found out that if you criticize a branch of finance from enough conference podiums, it may recruit you. And I was approached by some partners at a few VC firms who had a different view of the world and thought you could build something more purpose-built, suited to task around this problem of energy. One of them was a partner at Venrock who I learned an extraordinary amount from and really became a foundational life mentor as much as career mentor. Do you want to give him or her a shout out? or That would be Ray Rothrock, one of the partners running Venrock at the time and is just an extraordinary human being. And I was privileged to learn under Ray and some other folks and figure out how venture investing worked. My colleagues and I built a portfolio of nine companies over about one and a half fund cycles. Through some combination of luck, timing, and skill, probably more luck and timing, but maybe not zero skill, there were some big hits in that portfolio. One of them is Nest Labs, where we came in as a new investor in the Series C, and it was a really short amount of time before that was a multi-billion dollar acquisition by Google. Another one of the companies in that portfolio, Lucid Motors, which is a Tesla Challenger optimized for the Asian market, which means it has a cooler back seat than you would expect. Because if you have the car, you have a driver, and therefore the cockpit matters, but doesn't matter as much as it might, and the back seat matters a lot. It took a commitment, a billion-dollar-plus commitment from the Saudi Public Investment Fund last year. That portfolio did well, but I found myself a little frustrated. So was the pitch coming in, though, that this was impact investing or that it was market-based investing with an impact lens? None of the above. It was, this is market-based investing. We think there are neglected opportunities in energy. Think about the time, right? Mid-2000s, oil was above 100 bucks a barrel. Natural gas was $12 a million BTU. We talked about peak oil not from a demand perspective as we would today, but from a supply perspective. And there was a reasonable bet to make that those things, plus Waxman-Markey, the Kyoto Protocol, that those would change the economics of these industries. And it was a worthy venture bet. A lot of venture firms went on it at the time. I looked at it more as a lens by which we might build something different, but I knew that wasn't going to happen fast, that we would have to put some points on the board inside a conventional venture fund and then maybe earn the right to do something different. My prime story is the following. Wait, but you're going to go back to the fact that you were getting frustrated at Venrock? They all come together, Jason Jacobs. It's one grand crescendo. Okay, because you you had me. I was on on the edge of my seat. Dude, deliver. Come on. So I, when I was a newly minted venture investor at Venrock, I'm like the junior guy in the firm, and I'm supposed to come up with really interesting things. So I try to find all the really coolest professors and postdocs and PhDs who are doing the most groundbreaking work that could be really interesting companies. And I want to develop relationships with them because you only develop trust through shared experiences. And I want to earn the right to fund them in the future. And I had, because I'm a nerd, a literal list, like my top 10 list of labs. And because I'm local in Boston, right, the top five are all at MIT. And at all five of them that I go to, I ask, hey, how's your research going? And at every single one of them, a 23-year-old woman has shown up and given them a grant six months before I was there. And I was like, wow, I got to get to know this person. Like, you know, she's either going to be a terrible rival for Mindshare or we're going to be good friends. And it ended up being the latter. This was my colleague, Sarah Carney, who totally different professional upbringing than mine, had run a small family foundation that gave pre-commercial research grants to these labs and university settings doing breakthrough energy research. And Sarah was extraordinarily successful at that when the Department of Energy's Advanced Research Projects Agency issued its first set of grants. It was 37 grants in what, 2010, something like that? 
an outsized proportion of them were to Sarah's projects, despite the fact that she had no technical training and no sort of business market background and energy, just extraordinary judgment of character, being able to find people who are going to push out the dome of the universe. You're making me feel shame because I wish that had come up on my podcast with Sarah. So then I could have said, what enabled you to do that without that technical training? So anyway, she and I got to know each other and we realized we were on the opposite sides of a capital gap, that she was trying to give grants to researchers who wanted to form companies. But what would happen if their companies launched and they were never able to get funded? What if she actually misused philanthropic dollars unwittingly by launching them into a void? I'm on the other side. That's where my frustration is, right? At the firm, we can get Nest done. We can get uh, Lucid done. We can get our power electronics company done. But when I or my colleagues show up at the Monday morning meeting with some crazy-ass, off-the-wall, high-risk, high-reward, asymmetric breakthrough, and I'm like, guys, it's an antenna, but it tunes heat into power. Or guys, it's a platform for microbes. They're going to chew cellulose and make diesel fuel. The answer is always the same at the early stage. It's, wow, we really like those people. They're really cool. And this technology is awesome. But it's a little too early and a little too risky, especially given that the opportunity cost of our dollar is doing the Series B round of Twitter. So how about they come back in two or three years? And those same entrepreneurs would then go down the road to Kleiner Perkins and get the same story and then go down the road to Sequoia. And when that happened, there wasn't going to be a two or three years. And if you're a bright young entrepreneur out of Stanford or Berkeley or Harvard or someplace, you don't beat your head against the wall forever. You eventually give up and go work at Google X. So I'm sitting here terrified that we're going to lose not just a generation of technologies, of things that need to be brought into the world, but a generation of humans. And if we have a gap where the best and brightest fled this field because they couldn't get financed, how long will it take us to get that back? If it's a generational problem, we might only have a generation or two. So at that time, with your Venrock LP hat on, so with the fund philosophy that was sold when the fund was raised, would executing against that have, like, was the frustration coming from that the philosophy didn't allow it, or was the frustration coming from that the philosophy did allow it, but it was falling on deaf ears? No, no, no. It's the philosophy didn't allow it for good reasons. But the investors at Venrock, like the investors at Andreessen or the investors at Spark or anywhere else, they don't give you the money for the following X reasons. They give you the money in order to achieve a superior risk-adjusted return better than what they would have gotten by putting those dollars into market instruments in the context of a portfolio. But that's it. That's the beginning and that's the end. And we were making the right rational decisions about where to place our capital according to being able to deliver on the returns that our LPs expected. But those didn't include how do you maintain a powerful stream of talent coming in to address an existential threat? How do you turn over every rock that needs to be turned over in order to mitigate a climate catastrophe? That just wasn't part of the mission, right? It's not good or bad. It just is what it is. And I think I had thought there are going to be enough cases where the story will be so compelling Or I'll put ego on it. I will be the right messenger. I can be a catalyst, right, to make something happen that wouldn't otherwise. Or the macro will turn in my direction or something. And I woke up and realized one day the problem isn't that I'm finding the wrong investments or we're making decisions that aren't, you know, the right ones given our motives. It's that we're not motivated to solve the problem I'm trying to solve. I'm in the wrong place. It's an incentive problem. Incentive problem. And that became very clear to me, right? At a particular partner meeting, it was a rare Monday where we had not one but two companies come in and pitch. And we looked at the first that had a sort of hardware component and a long time frame and past. Look at the second, which was a fairly frivolous 
social media company that was trend riding. Want to give it a shout out? Not going to do that one. <laughs> Not for posterity. Well, I thought I had you. You're on a roll. Yeah, I know. I know. I know. But it really caused me to have a deep realization. And I left that room after we had seen sort of the company that I would have wanted to back not make it, and the one that I thought was, man, that's really what I don't want on my tombstone, getting through. And I made two phone calls. And one was to my wife, and I told her, I'm done. Like, it's clear I'm not going to accomplish what I want here. And then the second one was to Sarah, who two weeks beforehand had sat across the table from me and said, there's a different way. There is a pool of capital that is four times bigger than the entire venture asset class It's just U.S. family foundation money. Forget corporate foundations, donor-advised funds, the rest of the planet. Just U.S. family foundation money, four times bigger than the entire venture pool of money invested and on the shelf. And there's a way to redirect it to be able to back ventures a little earlier and a little riskier than other people would do and tee the ball up, right, for them to come and take the second and third swing once the distance to the green isn't so far. How can I push this analogy further? We could do that. And because of that experience I had had, in that partner meeting, I suddenly had the ears to hear. And I called her up and said, all that stuff I said about like not really leaning forward and being your partner here, forget I said all that. We're going to do this. We're going to do it together. What year was this? 2013, January. Okay. And we're in 2019 now. So what have you been up to? It initially was not clear, I think, to me or anybody whether what we were trying to do at Prime at the bleeding edge of impact investing would work. And it was very clear to me up front that it was not a job. It was a volunteer effort at least at the beginning. So I decided I was- Kind of like what I'm doing now. Yeah, I know, exactly. It's all about me at the end of the day, so I got to bring it home. So I decided to do three things. I'd only ever had one job at a time in life, so this was weird. One of them I found that as a board member, I tended to be very hands-on, sort of by default, intuitively. And I got the most satisfaction out of projects that I really wanted to see brought into the world where I thought I could make a difference. There was something I could do and work that I did with the CEO that would get the company to where it wouldn't be otherwise. So I decided to pick two, three organizations to join the boards of as an independent and make something happen that wouldn't otherwise. And then were you doing consulting to pay the bills? No. I saw there were two problems that I wanted to spend time solving, right? One of them, which is very enduring, is is the prime problem. How do you find the right capital source to get things started when it's just a little longer and riskier journey? than it is in other technology categories. But the other problem that I saw was that we have an asymmetry in the world and where invention happens and where the ability to deploy with impact happens in that we make most new stuff when tech centers in the US, a little bit Israel, a little bit Europe, a little bit of China in some fields, but really overwhelmingly the US. And it just doesn't matter here. 2003 to 2013, you look at the number of new power plants built In the U.S., new power plants to satisfy new demand. So not like replacing the old one that got tired out, but new power for new demand. We built a new power plant about every six months, six or seven months, a little less than two a year. Okay. For 10 years. In China, they built one every five days. 500 megawatt coal-fired power plant equivalent every five days for 10 years. So the number of shots on goal that you had alone, right, let alone whether the economic envelope or something else was more attractive, was a big deal in these developing economies, in China, in Southeast Asia, in Sub-Saharan Africa, that's where it mattered a lot. And I looked and saw that there was a whole generation of technologies that had been sort of developed in the US, but nobody was going to take the risk on a first plant here, either because there wasn't enough risk orientation to the capital or because the alternative was just too cheap. Like, why would you build something that competes 
against natural gas fired generation in the US. You wouldn't when natural gas costs three bucks a million BTU. In China, where it's 1050 off the pipeline, the math's totally different, right? You have a much bigger envelope for profit taking, and they care a little bit more about pollution than we do. So with a couple of colleagues, I set up a holding company called MNL Partners that was backed by six high net worth family offices to do that, to do sort of first of a kind plant builds in energy and environment or manufacturing plant builds for things like batteries. And to do that as a project developer, working in concert with a big Chinese company that would provide market access and most of the capital, and then a Western technology company in each domain that would bring something new and innovative, probably wasn't going to build its first plant in the U.S., but could pull it off in a Chinese context. That work was really important and meaningful. It was the vast majority of my time for many years. Harder to do now where the U.S. is politically and its relationship with China and how rules around technology transfer and foreign investment have changed have just made that interface extremely difficult. But it's important work. So when was that that you were having that revelation? A couple of years ago. And I think at the same time, Prime was a progressive experiment. The beginning, the question was just, can we get one investment done? Can we use this sort of unique, I won't go into the, the terms, we could nerd out on them, but there are things called program-related investments and recoverable grants that allow you to take a dollar you would have granted that has inherently higher risk tolerance, right? It wasn't expecting any return. And make an investment with that that has some special tax and other treatment to it, provided you can demonstrate that the investment is in line with a philanthropic mission and is unlikely to be made but for the philanthropic motive. And the first question was, can we do that? People have only used these instruments extremely rarely. Is it legal to do it? Total question for me, right? Like, is this okay? People had used these instruments in low-income housing, like the housing built you know, in Louisiana post-Katrina was largely program-related investment money. There were some examples in healthcare and biotech. The Gates Foundation, for example, funded some companies, including a vaccine discovery company here in greater Boston called Genosha Biosciences very famously using this kind of program-related investment dollars. But we had no idea if you could do it in energy. The first goal was just to do it once. Then it was, was once a fluke? Can we do it twice? Is this a point or a line? Then it was, is it a curve? Hey, we're not in jail yet. Are there three of them? Right, exactly. Well, it's a good bar to reach. Like, if you're not in jail, you're doing something right. And then the question was to see, could we bring that capital? Are we outing you on the pod? <laughs> you, are, you are not. <laughs> I have nothing to hide, Jason Jacobs. <laughs> then the question was, can we bring that capital with a, a long-term lockup period in not millions of dollars, but tens of millions of dollars at a time to block, to fund a blind pool of companies with some track record and faith in the process and the manager. And as that became more clear and we started to build a real team at Prime, it's become more and more of my focus and what I want on my tombstone. I mean, one thing I can't help but wonder, so, I mean, Sarah got into some of the mechanics at Prime and, and I think it's great. I mean, there's so, there's this dearth of capital at this stage. Yeah. There's also a dearth of, of just climate philanthropy in general, right? And, and so I guess one question for you, and I mean, you're inherently biased, so I'll ask you to, to check your bias at the door. But if there's a pool of philanthropic capital and it could go towards, and someone cares about climate change, how should they think about philanthropy versus this, what's it called, blended finance that you guys do? Yeah. How should they think about that allocation? So look, there's the highest dumb level and then there's all the nuance. But the highest level, I think- Traditionally, how foundations have thought about their dollars is that there are two completely different pools. And if you go to a big charity that has hundreds of employees, they live on different floors, right? Like if you go to some big biomedical charity that distributes medicine to people in sub-Saharan Africa, there will be several floors of people who are program officers and their job is to give the money away. Then there might be another floor or two on top of the people who manage the endowment of the charity, right? The money that has to get invested to earn a return, so there's money to be given away. They probably view their job as being a master of the universe quant nerd 
and view with some suspicion the people below them giving money away who are certainly doing a good thing but are perhaps not as sophisticated, right? And there's nobody in between them, right? This is not like John Malkovich. There's no like 11th and a half floor where there's somebody in between. And what happens if you bring a proposition that is, I have an investment for you. It is earlier or riskier than would normally pass your screens, but you should do it because it's right in the middle of the cause area you care about. And if it did work out, it would have an asymmetric level of impact that might even be accompanied by financial return. What happens? You go and give that story to the people on the lower floors, the people who are giving money away. They turn you off the minute they hear invest capital, right? You're now one of them. You go up to one of the higher floors and people are like, that's very nice, that's very quaint. And they pat you on the head and say, my job is to exceed an 8% risk-adjusted market rate of return. Unless you can give me high certainty that we can do that, this is just probably not relevant to me. Imagine that you go into that, right? And you sit down with that person. You say, sure, 8% market rated, risk-weighted market rate of return. I got it. What if I could give you 7.999, but a child will live? What if it was 7.998, but a village is not flooded? There now becomes some point where you start ascribing a generic value of goodness, right? A common currency of goodness to the financial return you would get out of an investment, which allows you to give more money away, and then to the impact that you have by putting those dollars to work in a for-profit, early-stage, high-risk company. And at some point, you're now achieving a local optimum, right, for that blended financial and impact-type return that's in the middle. And to your, to your question, there is every variety of in the middle, right? There is in the middle that is, I am comfortable that I may lose all this money, that it's going into something very high risk in an area that matters to me, but that's okay because I didn't expect any return anyway. And even if I make 50 cents back on the dollar, I'm not a bad investor. I'm a brilliant philanthropist. Someone gave me a magic wand that turns a buck into a buck 50. There's another version of that that is, nope, One of our investors at a very large and very well-known environmental foundation thinks this way. We believe that a competent manager going after these asymmetric bets has a high probability of being able to return most, if not all, capital. Profit beyond that, we're not sure, but we're comfortable having an allocation of our endowments portfolio that has a higher risk return threshold. Not too much, not going to endanger the whole of the portfolio, but a small appropriate carve out to make these high risk bets, right? How do you pitch it? Excellent question. I think it's incumbent on us, and I don't want this to get too technical too quickly, but catch me in the shallow waters before I get too deep. I asked the question. I think it's incumbent on us to never pull the wool over anyone's eyes, to do the opposite, to be whiter than snow. When we were raising the first proper fund at Prime, Prime Impact Fund, there was a slide toward the back of the deck that said, so is this fund going to return capital? And the answer was probably not. And people would see that as some kind of shocking statement, but we would say, look, seed funds generally don't return capital, right? It's pretty upper quintile, that even in mainstream technology areas that occurs, this is a small fund making early stage investors in fields that have a high level of capital intensity in a long time frame. Therefore, we think it is most prudent and appropriate for you to use dollars that have a low or no return expectation where returns are upside, given the level of risk. Not because we're investing in stupid ideas or stupid teams, right? But because we're investing very early where there's a high level of risk and a lot of things haven't been worked out. That's how we would explain it. I think what our mission is and what my mission is, is to then evolve and generate some different ways to put money to work. You talked about one of them earlier, a blended pool of finance where you have some philanthropic money that can take more risk and accept lower return. And then maybe a higher amount of market rate money that wants to heavy up behind winners once they're de-risked. I think if you put those things together, you really can have the best of both worlds. If you have those two entities collaborating in a novel structure 
that recognizes that one cares a little more about impact and a little less about financial return, the other is on the other side, I think you can come to a situation that is superior for both, superior for entrepreneurs, superior for the planet. And that's what I'm personally excited about developing. What's been exciting at Prime is that I thought this would be a journey that could be so long it might not even be climate relevant. I thought that to introduce some genuinely new thinking, some genuinely new structure into early stage venture in these categories would be something that might, you'd have to run an experiment for 10 years and then you get to run another experiment. I think we've been right time, right place in that we've been able to raise this first prime impact fund more rapidly than we had anticipated. And the conversations we've had have pretty quickly blended into, okay, well, what's the next thing? There are good things and bad things about your initial structure. What would you do differently if you had a bigger checkbook that would let you do more of the good things and mitigate some of the bad things? Hopefully that continues. So that collaboration that you talked about between the market-based and the philanthropic or concessionary capital? I mean, would you describe that? We usually use catalytic. Is that similar to concessionary or? So concessionary implies I'm investing in something that's going to generate a lower return. The reason we don't like that is we're not backing companies that will be small or modest if they are successful. If you're trying to find what is the nuclear fusion answer to benign baseload power, or what is the magic switching mechanism that allows you to time shift solar and wind? Those are not going to be small companies if they're successful, but they are higher risk. So you've got that catalytic capital. Yep. And then the market base that you're talking about collaborating yep. with, is that a structure that Prime either has today or is considering? Or does that come through the collaboration with the investment committee? Excellent question. I love hearing that. That's my goal is on the pod. You just it's want just, that all the yeah, time. I should keep like on a chalkboard here. And exactly. Write a little check. Do people ever tell you, Jason, that was a really dumbass question. Like, why did you ask That's the that inane question? You know what? I bet they thought it and they do not tell me, which I is I bet upsetting. somebody thought That's it once upsetting or twice. To me. I don't think many yeah. times, but I don't think it's, it's zero. Yeah, but I don't know if it would be more upsetting for them to think it and not say it or to say it and just put it right out there. Yeah, forever. For I think I'd want to know. I'd want to know. Probably want to know. So look, there is, and I think where we operate now, right, is that we are putting in catalytic capital early to de-risk high-risk bets, and then someone else comes on after us and takes it forward. And we've seen that happen in a lot of different types of companies. When our energy storage company, Quidnet, those parties after us were Evoke, which is a strategic, actually an oil and gas-related venture fund, and Breakthrough Energy Ventures, which is Bill Gates, Jeff Bezos, Jack Ma, and larger club of billionaires. In other cases, Data Collective, for example, led the Series A for a carbon negative company called Opus 12, you know, that we had a relationship with very early. And they're purely market-based, right? That's right. So sometimes it can happen quickly. I mean, Opus 12 is an extraordinary company. It has an extraordinary CEO and Nicholas Flanders and an amazing founding team, Tatosha and Kendra beside him. So to date, it's been more synthetic. It's been the second place that you went, that we come in sort of catalytically and we're filling an ecological niche in a community and allowing something to thrive where it wouldn't have otherwise. I'm more interested in how, but when you're doing that, you can't be a lifetime partner to these companies. We can put in a little bit of money early. We can participate in the first few rounds when there's a crisis later on. And remember, our research shows that in half of all winners in energy and environment of companies that file an S1 to go public and were venture backed, in half of all winners, there is some punitive, hold your breath, down round, pay to play financial crisis halfway through the company, if your capacity is modest, you can't show up there. And it's as much of an existential threat to the business as it never getting started. So I think it's important for us to be able to be a lifetime partner and to have a larger checkbook. And I think the way you do that optimally is through blending inside the same vehicle, you know, versus we play this role now and you play this role later and we're blending between my vehicle and yours. So if you had to peg point in time snapshot today, what percentage of Prime's DNA is 
nonprofit versus capitalist? And then if you look five years into the future, what does that percentage look like? It's funny. Sarah and I and my partner, Johanna Wolfson, just had this conversation over lunch today at Little Donkey in Central Square, eating an Impossible Burger. You bugged your table, which is why I knew to ask this question. There you go. Eating an Impossible Burger, which I recommend highly, even for someone who needs protein like yourself. It's got quite the chatter, so. Good stuff. Color me intrigued. 2.0 is not bad. Evan over here is a skeptic. Climate impact, yes, but health benefits. It's not health food. Like calorically, like triglyceride it's not. it's not health food. Anyway, we just had this conversation. This is going to sound like some punk move answer, but we don't see the world that way. It's one team. There is one mission, which is to bring capital to freestanding market rate solutions in climate and energy that have a higher level of risk, involve uncharted territory, and therefore benefit from a purpose-matched investor. But I don't think this is something where you've got one strand of DNA that is giving and soft and one strand of DNA that is capitalist and rapacious, and you're trying somehow to like engineer one side and the other to make them come together. I think you are starting with a new strand of DNA where everybody sitting around the table has one part of one and one part of the other. If you use the term impact investing, I've used it during this conversation. Sometimes we try not to. We don't necessarily want to be associated with everything in the neighborhood. There are a lot of has-been, never-will-be propositions that are running around trying to sucker in dumb money under an impact investing umbrella. We don't want to be compared to those things. But if you do use that term, it's not a question of, is it impact with a side of investing? Is it an impact amuse-bouche with an investing meal? We don't think of it that way. It's, it's all one thing. Both of those things are equally important, and they play equal roles in our decision-making. So a couple of the things I want to touch on, and then, although I feel like we could go on forever, we should probably wrap up it at some point. But one is just, we talked earlier in the conversation about how there's things that have impact and things that give you energy. And I'm curious, this innovation side that you're working on, clearly the impact is motivating to you. You talked earlier on in a very fiery, passionate way about your concern about the problem, right? And so how much of the path that you've chosen in terms of where to spend your time is based on its ability to have impact versus because it's the thing that, that gives you energy? Yeah. So look, I'm a big nerd. I've always been a nerd. I went down my initial analyst firm road in life because I realized as a college senior that I gossiped about technology the same way normal people gossiped about like the Bruins or Kim Kardashian. And it was weird that people, there were places where people would pay you to think about the future and talk about it. Like that was really a revelation to me. So would I be doing things that were high tech oriented, innovation, high risk, more questions than answers? Even apart from this, yeah. But with that said, I'm 44 years old. I'm probably now on the downhill slope of life, right? I turn 43 tomorrow. I hate to hear you talk that way. Yeah, come on. You, you might still be on the uphill slope. Depends on what our like life expectancy is. So I've got another 12 months on the uphill yeah, slope. Yeah, then it's all downhill from there, dude. Sorry. Ooh, this better be one hell of a year. Oh, but you know, I, I think about that, right? Like there will be a moment. I'm going to be laying in a hospital bed somewhere, you know, looking up at my grandchildren's faces. And motivations are different for different people. I don't want to look up at them and feel like I left anything on the field. Or to the extent that I have any sort of talent or drive or ability to grind, I don't want that to be for nothing. I'm probably just casting about into the dark as to what that is. I think we all probably are. And I think at this point in life, you get enough maturity to realize that the things where you thought you had it at different points in your life or your career, there was a lot more to learn and there will be more to learn. But it's hard for me when you're faced with an existential threat for that not to be at least potentially one of the highest and best uses of one's time and talent. 
Well, yeah, once you, it's like once you've seen, you can't unsee. You can't unsee it. Yeah. And then in, just in terms of the, talked a little bit about this before, the philanthropic landscape, I'm just curious, is your stance that philanthropic capital could be better invested over here in more of a catalytic way, or is it that the existing ratios should remain, but we just need to grow the pie? It's hard to even give a nuanced answer to that question because I think we're barely scratching the surface of what catalytic capital can do. Again, I'd go back to the previous point, right? The entire U.S. venture asset class is like three, $350 billion. U.S. family foundations alone are on the order of like $850 billion. Of those dollars, which, what, like $90, $100 billion in grants goes out every year? And 99.99% of that is grants. It's sort of the least creative, tried and true use of this precious resource that can inherently take on higher risk than otherwise. And there are problems you can solve with grants and problems that you can't. If we went around and granted money to a bunch of early stage companies, we wouldn't then be teaching those entrepreneurs how to work with a board. We wouldn't be establishing a capital structure and putting early valuations on these businesses. We wouldn't be bringing in for-profit market rate co-investors as early and as often as their risk tolerances will accept. We wouldn't be building an ecosystem that can develop these companies. It's an inferior use of philanthropic dollars in that context, not in so many others, right? But in that specific one, to grant versus to impact invest. And yeah, I think there's something superior to the how, not just the what. I, I don't think it's just that we need to do more of it. I think we need to change the way these dollars are being channeled. The last question that I have, and this is probably outside of the scope of your core responsibilities at Prime, but just I've heard a lot over these many discussions about the importance of policy. You touched on it a little bit earlier in the discussion, talking about how like a price on carbon, for example, or pricing the externalities, I think you said, maybe in the next 20 or 30 years, hopefully, right? But not before, maybe. But I'm just curious, how essential is that to the, not necessarily to your portfolio and success, but to the overall equation of getting our arms around this problem? And I guess as a follow-up to that, just... For people that are concerned about that and want to see it happen, like, what can we do? If it's not the thing that gives us energy, do we just like leave it to somebody else? You ready for a long answer to a short question? They weren't even that short. Try it. But then I've got my, like, if I, if I knock three times on the table, that's the code for wrap it up. So look, on the first thing, policy is a very big deal. If you inserted 10 or 20 or $100 per ton of CO2 into vast many business plans, they would now suddenly make sense. It's the area where I throw my hands up the most. There are people in the world who are really good at being able to be diplomats and to understand how to find nuances and persuade different groups to come together and make trade-offs that get you to a conclusion. I'm not that guy, and I'm inherently skeptical of anything that requires some crutch to be propped up on. So the vast majority of climate philanthropy goes to influence policy and regulation. I welcome that money. I think it's awesome. I think it's great. It hasn't done a lot for me so far. I wish it had done a lot more. And as a result, people who are smarter and more talented than me at those things can focus on that problem. I'm going to focus on how can we bring solutions in place that need minimal or no policy or regulatory support. Given that carbon is this like invisible, insidious enemy, right? Is it a crutch just to price the toll that oh, the don't, don't get me wrong. energy a, a, that we consume is having in terms of carbon emissions? Don't get me wrong. In a rational world, that makes complete and total sense. I don't think we live in a rational world. This goes back to being a student of human behavior, right? I find it hard to believe. This happened in Australia. This is a country that is one of the canaries in the coal mine for climate change and had put in place a set of elected leaders who were very focused on creating economic incentives to lower emissions. And you saw them all get voted out two weeks ago. 
it's just hard for me to believe that's an answer. I have more faith and personally want to put more wood behind the arrow of innovation than I do by getting the accounting right, at least when it's going to cost somebody something. Again, plenty of different points of view that people can have on this. And I wish I lived in a rational world where everybody would sit down and make that consensus and then cast their votes for people who are going to make the right choices. We tend to cast our votes for people we'd want to have a beer with. They're not the same thing. Well, I feel like I've put you through the ringer enough. I'm also out of jokes, which is never a position I want to find myself in. Recharge that renewable resource, my friend. (laughs) Any parting words, anything I didn't ask, or any final message that you want to leave listeners with? We've ended on a sort of weird note here. I think to me, it's the other side. Good at that. Weird. Weird weird notes is like, that's like my MO. Kind of your stock in trade. There's just so much potential. Every time I go walk the halls at a university and talk to grad students about their research. Every time I go to a business plan competition, every time an entrepreneur comes in and tells us their story, regardless of whether it's sort of the right fit or not, there's always a surprise. And usually some invigorating, inspiring, tell me something I didn't know, you opened a pinhole onto the world of possibility kind of surprise. I at one point was pessimistic, right, about population growth. I thought over time, you're just going to have more of it. If you lined up, you know, any UN population division forecast of where we would top out on people and compare it to what actually happened, we have yet to achieve the plateauing that we've always expected, right? And I used to get bummed out about that until I realized that every one of those human beings is a new bright mind, a new source of ideas and implementation and communication and vigor that didn't exist beforehand. That's what Malthus got wrong, right? You know, the whole idea was that food supply was growing arithmetically and people were growing geometrically and therefore we would be effed. He didn't realize that the people enabled you to solve the problem. The people will enable us to solve this problem. That is a much less awkward place to end. (laughs) Matthew, thank you for coming on the show. You've been a terrific guest. Thank you, Jason. Hey, everyone. Jason here. Thanks again for joining me on my climate journey. If you'd like to learn more about the journey... You can visit us at myclimatejourney.co. Note, that is .co, not .com. Someday we'll get the .com, but right now, .co. You can also find me on Twitter at jjacobs22, where I would encourage you to share your feedback on the episode or suggestions for future guests you'd like to hear. And before I let you go, if you enjoyed the show, please share an episode with a friend or consider leaving a review on iTunes. The lawyers made me say that. Thank you. Thank you.